Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And your hardship as discipline, God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. Not, no true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live. They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. We saw a few weeks back, as we were looking at Hebrews chapter 6, that the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Christians who are tempted to turn back, away from faith in Jesus Christ and back to Judaism, away from a true worship of God through the Son of God, by the Spirit of God, and to turn back, to go back. And the question is, why? We didn't get there in Hebrews 6 as we continue to look at the attributes of God today. We look at his sovereignty. What does it mean that God is sovereign? Someone uh, said it talking about the kids' song. God's sovereignty is his kingly saving rule over the whole world. But if we're not careful, God's sovereignty can make him appear remote. He's a bit like a Bond villain. You know, in a big chair in the heavenly realm, stroking a cat that's purring. He has power, but he's not intimate. Last week, we looked at the fact that that is not a fair description of God. God comes close, Psalm 27. God comes close in his son. He has revealed himself fully and perfectly and completely in Jesus. And now by his spirit, he lives in the heart of every single Christian, man, woman, boy, girl. But why were the Hebrew Christians struggling so much? It says uh, that they were tempted to turn back, but why? Chapter 10, verse 32 tells us that they were suffering tremendously. They were having their stuff taken away by people who wanted to do them harm. They were facing slander. Chapter 10, verse 33, insults, words. People were laughing at them. People were not just teasing them. They were being malicious and unkind. 
And the question is, would they stand up for Jesus at that point or would they turn back to the easier path? Because you speak to any teenager here in here, year seven up through 13, it is hard to be a Christian at school or college. It gets no easier in adult life. I'm sorry to disappoint. But school is jolly hard and it's tempted if you're a Christian to turn back, to be a Sunday Christian like I was in my teenage years till about 18. Standing up for Jesus is very, very hard at school. And in chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, it says, it describes a group of people who faced just what you faced and it was worse for them and they were tempted to turn back. Insult, suffering. 11, chapter 33, as we near our passage, the whole of Hebrews 11 is framed by this picture frame of suffering and insult and sticky sin that is consuming the Christians and saying, shall we turn back? It's easier not to own the name of Jesus. Chapter 11, 33 and following describes Christians getting sawn in two, Christians getting fed to the lions, Christians who are trusting Jesus in the Colosseum. And yet there's no one perfect in this book apart from Jesus, said Homer Simpson. And they trusted Jesus. And the writer of this book is saying you need to endure. In chapter 12, verse 1, that's where our passage begins. Will you endure? Will you stand up for Jesus? Will you trust his sovereignty? Will you trust his wisdom? The word sovereignty is not in this passage. So why have I chosen it? Because it's about the wisdom of God. Don't you notice that there are three images that come up in this passage that describe God's wisdom, his sovereignty in his rule, so that he's not a Bond villain that's far away. He's close, he's imminent, that's Psalm 27 from last week. And that's why the writer can say, verse 7 of Hebrews 12, endure hardship. How can Christians who are tempted to turn back endure? Chapter 11, here's an example of God's faithfulness to people who've made a mess of their lives. It's the rogues gallery of faith. Our attention is not on them, it's on God. And now we get to chapter 12 and it says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the sticky sin, chapter 12, verse 1. Everything that hinders us, everything that stops us running, and let us run the race with perseverance, says chapter 12, verse 1. It's about endurance, it's about perseverance. It's not looking back, it's looking forward. It's looking forward to the promises of God by looking back to the runner, who is Jesus Christ. And here are these three pictures of a trainer, of a father, because it's Father's Day, and of a physician, of a doctor. You've got a trainer, you've got a father, you've got a doctor. Let's look at these three and understand the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God in everyday life. He's not far away. He's ever so close. And God is described as a trainer. God is described as a trainer. Can we pull those blinds? Maybe that blueness would... Uh, Help us a little bit. God has the wisdom of a trainer. Therefore, if God is a trainer, there is an order to our suffering. Thank you. There's an order to our suffering. Look at verse 11 near the end of our passage, Hebrews 12, verse 11. It says, all discipline and all trouble are painful at the time. We're tempted to turn back. But it says, verse 11, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The word trained is the word uh, from which we get gymnasium. It's, it's a word for exercise. It's a word for physical fitness. You cannot endure, you cannot persevere in the face of suffering unless you see God is a trainer. Now look, you can look at me physically and you can tell that I've never had the experience that I'm about to describe. 
I am told that when you join a gym, one of the conditions of joining a gym is that you need to go for what's called a fitness assessment. Thankfully, that's one of the reasons I don't join a gym. You have to go and they measure all the bits that you uh, wish were not where they were. They measure body fat ratio, apparently. They say, what are your goals? What fitness do you want to improve? Okay, all of it, right, we've got work to do. Um, how much weight do you want to lose? What size dress do you want to fit into if you're a lady? That kind of stuff. They ask you your goals and then they set you a plan. They say, you need to stop eating all this. You need to eat this horrible looking green stuff. That's what they say. And then they give you to say, you need to swim a thousand lengths every day. You need to lift this weight in increasing measures. You need to run this far. You need to cycle this distance. You do all this stuff and the trainer looks at you and designs a specific plan for you from their wisdom. They look at where they're trying to get you. They look at where you are right now and they say, for you to get from here to there, it's going to take a long time, but this is what you need to do. You need to sweat. Are you committed? You need to be disciplined. Are you? You need to be able to persevere. You need to endure if you're going to stand up stronger and straighter. That's what a good gym coach and a trainer does. A specific plan that's for you. Just imagine if you went to the Rainbow Center and you signed on the dotted line, gave them all the money that they needed, and they say, oh, here's the workout plan for Anthony Joshua. I know he, he lost, there may be some controversy behind that, but he's a great boxer, he's really fit, do that tomorrow. It would crush me, it would crush you. Imagine that, imagine a great Olympic rower saying, this is what they do every day, this is what they eat, all this meat, all these egg whites, you've got to do that starting tomorrow, it would crush you, it's not appropriate. A wise trainer says, where are you now? Where are you trying to get to? And this is a plan from my wisdom and experience just for you. There's a purpose in the pain. Friends, verse 11 says, God is a perfect trainer. When it comes to, him, so, to his sovereignty and his wisdom, his power, his power is purposeful and it is orderly. Unless you see God as a trainer, you're going to be in a lot of trouble with my conviction. Unless you see God as a trainer, you'll be confused at your life. When you look at your week, when you look back at the last three months, for some of us that's been very hard, and if you do not see God as a trainer who has specifically put things in place for your ultimate good, you'll find life very, very hard. Just because it's not the order we choose, so often we can think there's no order at all. And here we are told that God is a trainer. Life is not chaotic. It may feel it. It may seem it. But behind our chaos, from our point of view, there is a loving God who is a trainer. The disappointments of life, the tears that fall, are part of his good and sovereign plan. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace and some other great hymns, struggled with this. He said, it's okay for me to give the big things to God. The trouble is everyday life. This is what he said. I paraphrased. But he said, my problem is this. My wife died and I gave that to the Lord, it's a big thing. My job was taken away from me. That was okay, I gave it to God. But when I got up and decided that this is what I want to do with my day, here and now, the disappointments come, the frustrations rise. This and that don't show up by the end of the day. By the middle of the day, he says, I'm overturned spiritually. Did you get that? My wife died, I give it to the Lord, I trust him in that, it's a big thing. But the small things, when I plan my day and I get frustrated that the car won't start, I get frustrated that the kids don't want to wear what I've put out from them and it's a battle from beginning to end. I'm frustrated that the internet's gone down again, first world problem. But you get the point? 
Newton is so helpful to say, it's not the big things that we can't give to God, it's the small things that I get so dis- disappointed and so frustrated by, by the middle of the day, I'm overturned spiritually. I want to stop being a Christian because of the small things, not the big things. God is a coach, and he's trying to grow us into his likeness. And just like muscles don't grow unless they are exercised, your patience won't grow until it's opposed. That's what exercise is, isn't it? Opposition, those big elastic bands, whoever thought of that has made a million out of not a lot. They put a stress against you as you work against them. The, the parachutes that you can wear if you're running um, to sl- give you greater um, force to work against. Your patience won't grow unless it's opposed. Your compassion and your courage and your commitment won't grow unless it's challenged. And all through our lives, God is the perfect trainer who supplies what we need so that we can grow. But here's the catch. If you don't understand that God is a trainer, you won't just struggle to deal with suffering in your life. You'll also find any suffering a surprise. I came across this quote uh, this week from this lady called uh, Isaac Dinentz, who wrote Out of Africa. She says this, she said, rich people and poor people aren't crybabies. Rich people and poor people aren't crybabies. They aren't the problem. They understand suffering. It's the middle class people who don't. She says, rich people intrinsically know that being wealthy doesn't buy happiness. They realize that life is hard. Poor people, of course, know life is hard. But the middle class feel because of their hard work, because of their efforts, because of their scheduling, because of their goal setting, somehow they're shocked when they find out that life is hard. Life is disappointing. Life is full of pain, death and decay. She says middle class people are the only ones who are surprised by suffering. What a timely word that is for Epsom and Yule. The majority of us are comfortable. We know where where Waitrose is, whether it's shot there or not. All our kids are in schools, we have at least one car. And she says actually it's us that need to remember that God is a trainer. Verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. With all the hardship of life, God is described in verse 11 as a perfect trainer, a wise trainer who opposes us so that we might grow in his likeness. He longs to produce a harvest of righteousness, verse 11 and peace. We need to hear those words. God is a perfect trainer, but that's not all. If God is only a trainer to you, you will become stoic. You will be fortified. You have a strong backbone. But you kind of become determinative. You think, oh yeah, this is going to happen and I can't do anything about it. That's not the full picture. And because it's Father's Day, we need to look at the main image of the passage, which is God has the wisdom of a trainer, so there's a purpose in our suffering. But secondarily, God has the wisdom of a father, And so there's a purpose in your suffering. There's a purpose in your suffering. Everywhere in this text, it's dominated by the word discipline. Did you notice it? Eight times in five verses. Let me point them out to you. Once in verse 5, discipline. Verse 6, discipline. Verse 7, it appears twice. Verse 8, it's there again. And it's there once in verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11. It's discipline. This passage is about the loving attitude of God who is a trainer, verse 11, but the primary image is of discipline. And we don't just pick on this passage because it's Father's Day. 
This describes the main image of God as a loving father. It describes his sovereignty. He's not remote bond villain. He's close like a loving father should be. He's the perfect heavenly father that we have if we're Christians. But every parent knows this, or you may have observed this of other parents. The job of a parent is actually to get rid of your children. By that I mean, for them, you know they share your nature. But when they're born, they are not uh, independent, they are dependent. They can't make good decisions, so you want to make them dependent, uh, independent rather. You want to make them fuel so they can be standing on their own two feet, so they can go further than you, so they can follow Christ more than you. They're not yours, they're a gift. That's the role of parenthood, to lovingly equip them for the world and for the future that God has planned for them. They're not to be held on to tightly. But look at the two parts of being a good, loving father. Verse 10. Verse 10 is very, very helpful. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Earthly parents should love their children, should protect their children, should be there for their children, should get rid of them out of the home when they can because, not they don't love them or want them, because they love them dearly and they've equipped them for life. That's the job of parenthood, whether it's a father or a mother. But notice the aim. Our fathers disciplined us, verse 10, for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That word but there is so important, it shows that every single earthly dad, whether you think they're a good dad or not, all of us fall short of God's heavenly standard of loving discipline, his lovely fatherhood. Here are the two kind of areas that I fall short in, maybe you do too if you're a dad. I don't always discipline my children for their good. Often I can be disciplining our children because they have embarrassed me and I'm ashamed or I think that other people will think better of me if I discipline my children in this way. So that's not for their good, that's actually for my good. Here's the second mistake we can make uh, that God never makes. It's, a, it's the principle of proportion. We can uh, under-discipline so we spoil a child, or we can over-discipline so that we are harsh with a child. God never makes that mistake. He always disciplines for the right way, in the right proportion for our good. God is the perfect father. He's not like me. Look at what he says, verse 5. The writer says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. God's discipline is perfect. It's perfectly proportional. It's never too much. It's always for our good. It's never too little. But why do we need it? We sung this song, Two Sins. Why do we need discipline from a heavenly father? Because without it, well, you've seen the child. We were there in uh, the Rainbow Centre swimming pool on Friday afternoon. Please don't come or you'll see me in my swimmers. I was there in the swimming pool and there's a child who was struggling to get into water. They had a strong aversion to water, but they had a swimming lesson. Now, that's what I call an irony. But it was very, very funny to witness, as long as you weren't the parent, who was trying to get the child in the pool. One of our boys accidentally, I think, splashed uh, the poor girl who was trying to get in and the volume went through the roof, literally. And there ensued 10 minutes of havoc uh, and humour, as long as you weren't the parent trying to get the child into the pool. 
We need discipline like every child needs discipline. If you know your own heart, you know why. Without discipline, I'm a spoiled brat. I think I know best. Every child thinks they know best. But it's the job of a parent to challenge that, to challenge their nature, because they know what lies ahead. You know what it's like if, if you see a child who's not had loving discipline, sometimes they're completely innocent. That's not their fault. They've had a really tough start to life. But sometimes people come from a loving home and that love has been shown in overindulgence. And that child needs discipline just as much. Because you know what's ahead. If there's no discipline now, there will be pain in the future, whether you're a child or whether you're an adult. And I need discipline from a heavenly father because without it, my heart will not change. Imagine having a heavenly father who always gives me what I wanted. That would not be a good thing because I don't know what's best. Imagine having a heavenly father who never crossed my will. That would be no good for me because then again, I think I'm a supreme ruler of the universe. But what we have is a heavenly father who knows exactly how much discipline we need, how much love we deserve, and it's always proportional. Without uh, discipline, we wouldn't know who we are. Without discipline, we wouldn't know who we are. We learn so much, not from being told, but by being shown. And so sometimes it's loving for a father to say, no, you need to run your uh, student bank account down to zero, and that's it. I'm not going to bail you out this time. That sometimes can be absolutely appropriate. But secondly, discipline from a loving Heavenly Father is also important because it shows us what really matters. Sometimes suffering and hardship at our own hands is what is needed to recognise what's really important. That's why John Newton again says, everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Now, how do we apply this? Because again, we're in danger of being a little bit remote. I think there's a few ways. How do you apply verse 7? It says, endure hardship as discipline. Here are the Christians, they're tempted to turn back, they're facing severe persecution and struggle in their life. And yet the writer is saying, persevere. God is like a coach, God is like a loving heavenly father, he's also like a doctor that we see so in a moment. Look at verse 7, if you see God is your father, it enables you, verse 7, to endure hardship as discipline. Endure hardship as discipline, when you know God is your loving heavenly father. How do you do that? Two ways. You know, first of all, that you're a child. Second way, you know that God's your father. What do I mean? Look at how children receive discipline. No matter how much any parent, let's personalise this, no matter how much I try to communicate why discipline happens in our home, why consequences happen in our home, our children will not understand it. Has anyone in this room, this will be very interesting, let's do a survey. Has anyone, any father who's uh, had discipline to uh, administer from a loving, right posture in your heart, unlike Homer Simpson with a hand around the neck, has anyone ever had a child say to them, thank you so much? I really think you're right to take away the phone from me because I, it's become an idol in my heart and mind. Has any child ever said that to you? Has any child ever said, you are absolutely right to ground me for three days? Has any child ever said, actually, one hour in my room, that is just what I needed? <laughs> Has any child ever said to you, actually, uh, you are absolutely loving and right to put me on the naughty step? We would never, ever say that. Never, ever say that. There's never been a child who says, Dad, you are perfect. 
Not because it says so on the mug, but because the discipline is always right, it's always proportional, I can always trust you. Never a child like that, because there's never an earthly dad like that. Verse 7 says, endure hardship as fatherly discipline. That is a discipline for me to understand that God, who is sovereignly controlled in everything in this world, is absolutely loving. He can see everything on his wide-angled lens of history. He knows exactly what I need to grow in holiness and righteousness so I'm more like his son. And it's the discipline for us to trust God in that moment as children to a loving father. It's discipline. Nothing you send is not what I need. Everything you withhold, I don't need. It's a confidence to say that. That's the first thing. Remember you're a child. Secondly, remember verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. Remember that he's your father. Remember that he's your father. That means everything God sends into your life is not because he is angry at you. It's not because you've done something uh, sinful. We need to be careful. It's not because we've done something sinful and he's getting you back and he's having a bad day. The gospel reminds us sometimes that earthly fathers sometimes get it wrong, often get it wrong. You're looking at an example here. But we have an older brother whose name is Jesus and he went to the cross for our sins and he paid for them sufficiently and fully. And that means that God cannot, because he's just and will never will, because he's fair, He'll never ask for double payment for our sins. They've been paid in full at the cross. That means if something happens in your life and you're thinking, yeah, God, you've left me. Are you getting me back for something? God would never do that because your sins have been paid for in full. So you can endure because God is always fair. He's always loving. He's always kind. Discipline yourself to remember that you are a child and that his discipline is always proportionate and fair and good. Discipline yourself to remember that he is your father. And anything that happens in your life is not because God is having a bad day, because sins have been paid for in full. You're not guilty for something, and so God is getting you. You may be feeling there is the just consequences of a pattern of behavior. That's slightly different. But remember that you're a child, and remember that God is a loving father. Verse 5, have you forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? We need to read the Bible as a word to us as sons. God is a coach. He's a trainer. God is a father. Lastly, very quickly, God is also a doctor. He's a physician. He's a physician. That means there's power when you face suffering. Um, Here's a picture of uh, Chris Froome. He's not blue when the picture was taken. He might be very, very white. I don't know if you've heard, but this week he was going down a ride. Adrian is looking at it as a cyclist. He knows how bad this story is. He was going down the hillside at 60 kilometers, 40 miles an hour. He took his hand off a handlebar to blow his nose. No more details needed. Um, There was a gust of wind and he was thrown into a brick wall. He broke his femur, his nose, and at least one rib, and he's been unconscious for three days. He's just regained consciousness. And because of cycling, he may have won one more race. But that's another story. Imagine when a doctor says to you after uh, three months, Mr. Froome, your femur is getting uh, re-strengthened. Now it's time for crutches. You need to put pressure on your leg. Cyclists are very, very hard men and women that cycle. They know pain to the max. But imagine that moment that you have to put weight on your broken leg for the first time. What are you thinking about the doctor? Can I trust you? This is going to hurt. Uh, It does hurt me. This is painful. I don't want to do it anymore. But then the physio gets involved and says, if you don't do this, you'll never get back on a bike again. 
You've got to trust the doctor. Look at verse 12. Trust the doctor. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. When Chris Froome puts his foot down the first time on that broken leg that hopefully will heal, it will be immense pain, but will he trust the doctor? This is the way to handle suffering, whether you're listening to a coach, a father, or a doctor. It's obedience. And one of the observations I have is that when people face suffering and hardship, they attempted to stop doing what they should be doing in everyday Christian life. I'm suffering, don't you see, so I don't need to love people. I'm suffering, don't you see, so I don't need to read my Bible. I'm suffering, I'm in pain, so I don't need to go to church, I'm going to pull back. And the danger is you've forgotten that God is a loving coach, he's a loving father, and he's a loving doctor. And to persevere in the face of suffering is always the encouragement to endure, to stand up, and that's trusting the heavenly father, coach, and doctor, which means putting weight on your leg and doing the regular things of Christian life, not pulling back, of keeping going, of not thinking, God, you've forgotten me in prayer, but trying to pray, trying to read, perhaps not a chapter, but a verse and meditating on that. Perhaps being honest with people saying, I don't want to be at church, but I'm going to go. It's obedience is the key when you hear the words from a loving doctor, father, and coach. But what about if you're here this morning and you think, well, I actually don't know all this stuff about Father's Day. I understand an earthly father and maybe you've had a good one or a bad one. But I don't know if I can say that God is my father. Well, how do we explain? I don't know of any other religion or philosophy in the world that enables people to stand in the face of suffering like the gospel does. No, not one. Christians standing in the lion's den, people standing in the, Christians standing in the Colosseum, people going into uh, Rome where there was a plague to love people that weren't even Christians. How do people get that fortitude? How do they stand? How do they endure? How could you endure? How could you die well in the face of lions? How could you die well under stress and duress? How do you endure seeing God as a father, trainer, and a doctor? John 1, 12, it says this, as many as received him who believed on his name, he gave authority to become children of God. For you to say that God is your father, all you need to do is to believe the promise of the gospel in that verse that says you need to receive Jesus Christ and believe on his name. Turn away from self-sufficiency. Trust Christ for who he is. Trust in the gospel. That's what it says in this passage. Consider him persevere and let us verse 2 fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God can God bring any good out of suffering look at the cross history's worst day is history's greatest day because of the cross. He does redeem through suffering. And Jesus says from the cross, so to speak, in my suffering, I looked at you. So in your suffering, look to me. That's the gospel. Let's pray.